by P4P Muscle Productions and Entertainment, the number one drug-free athlete sponsorship foundation in the world. Now, I want you to grab a friend, turn the volume up a bit, lean in, and listen to the show where all the athletes want to talk. Fit Talk with Melinda Corsino. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Fit Talk with Melinda. As always, the show is brought to you by P4P Muscle, the number one drug-free sponsorship in the world. If you're interested in learning more about them, check them out at www.p4pmuscle.com. You can use my code MELINDA, M-E-L-I-N-D-A, for 15% off any of their products. We're going to get right into tonight. We're bringing back Zach Cooper. If you listened to our show the last time, we did a very basic show on powerlifting, things to expect getting into your first meet, uh, different tips and tricks and things with what to expect at the beginning of powerlifting and the very basics of powerlifting. And since then, I've gotten a lot of questions, and I tend to get a lot of questions because I entered powerlifting from more of a bodybuilding and CrossFit background. I haven't been powerlifting for a crazy amount of years. And coming from that, a lot of people that I'm friends with are not powerlifters, which is great, but they have a lot of questions and concerns and is this cheating and why are you sumo deadlifting and what's with this gigantic arch in people's backs and what's with this low bar squatting thing and everyone should be high bar squatting. So I thought a good show would be to bring Zach back and kind of take an in-depth look at each lift. Again, we're only going to be here for 30 minutes, but we're going to look at squat, bench, and deadlift tonight and different variations in ways that you can improve your lifts and also different variations of how a power lifter might do something versus, let's say, someone in a CrossFit gym doing a wad. So for those that did not listen in last time, I'm going to let Zach give a quick introduction of himself before we get going. So welcome, Zach. Thanks for coming back on. Oh, thank you for having me, Melinda. I appreciate it. Um, as you said, I'm Zach Cooper. Uh, this, uh, let's see, 2018 marks my 21st year in uh, powerlifting in the sport. I started as a competitor in high school and college, um, moved on and became uh, a coach at the college level. I've coached at three college programs. Uh, I've been the coach of uh, three national title teams at the college level, I've been a meet director with USA Powerlifting. I'm a IPF Category 2 international referee with uh, the IPF and USA Powerlifting. I'm a senior international coach, and which brings me to why I'm here. This is what I do for a living. I am actually a powerlifting coach. It's uh, how I make my uh, living. I coach lifters from all over the country and, and in two different, country, uh, two different countries outside the United States uh, uh, for lifters that don't have coaches, and um, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for coming back on. And uh, for those of you that don't stalk me on Facebook, which I'm sure many of you do not stalk me on Facebook, uh, Zach is my powerlifting coach, but I also attended a USAPL coaching class that Zach, co- uh, Zach coached. Yes, he coached mm-hmm. that. He taught that. And that program touched on some of the things that we're going to be discussing tonight. So who better to have on doing this than Zach? So let's just get right into it tonight. Uh, we're going to go in the order of how you listen to meet. That would make squatting first. Uh, 
questions that I've been getting regarding squatting is I've recently swapped to uh, low bar squatting for the first time. I'm loving it. Uh, it did take a little bit of getting used to and still a lot more work that I have to do on it personally, but uh, it's awkward and, and different for people that don't know or have any background in low bar squatting. So why don't we kind of touch on the differences between high bar and low bar squatting and maybe the benefits that you can gain from both of those. Okay. Uh, well, I think the first thing that we're going to, that we'll touch on and, and dive right into is the fact that uh, people treat high bar and low bar like they do religions. Um, everybody believes that uh, there's one way to do it and that that way is the correct way. And the other party uh, is incorrect and they are not doing it the right way. As a matter of fact, we have entire books and coaches and uh, organizations. We even have a, uh, there's even a certification out there uh, written by a coach who wrote a book that says that if you're not doing a squat this way, then you're absolutely wrong and you're going to hurt yourself and you're going to go to hell or something like that. Um, <laughs> so that most plainly put, uh, the, the truth of the matter is, and, and this is not just me, this is with a lot of the other coaches uh, in lots of different organizations, not just USA Powerlifting, but all of the others as well, drug tested and not. Uh, coaches that have been around for longer than 10, 15, 20 years, we all kind of agree that there's more than one way to do it. <clears throat> high bar is not better than low bar. Low bar is not better than high bar. It really depends on the person, their preference, their body, how they're built, the ratio of their back to their femur, and then their femur to their uh, lower leg, the tibia fibula, and then the actual ratio of their torso to their legs. Um, a lot of that is going to dictate what kind of bar position works better for the athlete. Now, in the same breath, I'll also say that it's not generally accepted uh, amongst powerlifting coaches to teach the low bar first. And the reason why is because, as you found out, Melinda, it's very uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, when you learn oh, yeah. it first, uh, it, it's hard. And it, the feeling of that bar being down uh, across the bottom of your traps, bottom of your upper traps, across the superior border of the, of the scapula, where that bar kind of sits below where most people would normally put it, putting a tremendous amount of pressure, not only on the top of the scaps, but also on the back of the wrists where there's like extreme extension going on. And a lot of that pressure of the bar being supported on the back, being also supported by the wrist itself, uh, it just makes it very uncomfortable for people. So as you found out, a lot of the people that do it, um, it's hard to learn. And that's why most coaches will teach the high bar first, because there's not a lot of, uh, accumulation or acclimation to the position uh, that happens. So to sum summarize everything I just said, like there's not one way that's better than the other. I would definitely suggest for uh, your viewers out there, listeners to try high bar first, because that's obviously the easiest way to start because there's really not a lot of acclimation that takes place to do that. But then once they get comfortable with it, if they feel as though maybe they're tipping over and their hips are rising before their back, which is, was the case which we ha uh, had with you, um, then they need to, you know, get some help to learn where that low bar position is, make sure they got good wrist flexibility, and, uh, and try it. Uh, now, biomechanically what happens whenever you bring the bar from a high bar position to a low bar position, if the lower half of the body is in the right spot and your knees are externally rotating and you've got a good wide solid base in your hip and knee complex, and you're able to stay upright, 
with a low bar position, it actually brings the mass or the resistance closer to the body's center of gravity. And when the mass or resistance gets closer to the body's center of gravity, you have more of a stable platform from which to lift the weight. People describe going from high bar to low bar as though they feel like there's a they have a greater control over the lever, the lever being their torso, and they feel as though the, they're able to not necessarily stay more upright, but that they're able to control their torso angle in a better way. And I think that's what we found with you. Um, and if you just want to share, like, just your experience going from high bar to low bar, I think maybe some people might resonate. It might resonate with them. Yeah, if I uh, was smart enough before this radio show, I would have pulled up that uh, song from Aladdin that I sent you memes of after I started low bar mm-hmm. squatting for the first time. It's like literally a whole new world opened up. It is extremely mm-hmm. uncomfortable. It's still uncomfortable to this day on my wrists. Uh, I also learned that I was incorrectly wrapping my wrists. Uh, so mm-hmm. correctly wrapping my wrists. It, it's awkward on my back still, and it is a bit uncomfortable with the position of my arms. But once I squat, once I start squatting, the weight just goes down and up with so much ease comparatively when I was high bar squatting. Um, my knees cave less. I have less IT band pressure for sure. Uh, my back feels more stable and I feel like I can lift a ton more weight. I don't know if I can actually lift a ton more weight because we haven't tested a max yet, but I can tell by the sets that I'm doing that if I was to do high bar, I probably would not be able to hit these numbers. Uh, So I'm definitely happy that I started high bar, but I had been squatting high bar since I was probably 16 years old. I'm not saying with perfect form, but it had been a long time. So I had a good basis of sort of what I was doing. Yeah, I think if if we look comparatively week over week, I think we're seeing that you're hitting these rep PRs with a low bar position that we had previously. I mean, compared to the high bar the last cycle, the numbers we're putting up this cycle are consistently higher than they were before. Yes, agreed, agreed. Uh, And for powerlifting purposes, I mean, the point is to lift the most amount of weight you possibly can. And if that can be achieved by low bar squatting, then I see no reason why people shouldn't be swapping over if if their coach thinks it's a, it's a good idea. So I'm definitely happy. But it's also important at the same time to continue to practice high bar squatting, different variations of squatting, front squatting, overhead squatting, et cetera. Uh, you shouldn't just swap over and that be the only thing that you do. 100% totally agree. Um, we could spend like, three shows on just the squat because um, it is, I think, the most um, difficult movement to do mechanically because there are so many different variations. And people could say that about bench and they say that about deadlift. But in my opinion, I think bar position, um, torso angle, knee position, foot angle, movement speed, uh, hand position on the bar, like all those factors – like changing any one of those things can make a huge difference in the mechanics 
of anyone's squat. I mean, I, I've walked up to someone and done nothing other than just have them change the position of their elbows and changing the position of their elbows and their squat changed the torso angle. It changed their upright uprightness, changed the tightness and, you know, it literally changed everything. So um, there are all kinds of different things you can do in the squat, but I think mechanically it's the most tricky. And that's why all those variations <clears throat> when properly done in a program really pay dividends uh, when done in the right appropriate manner in the right day uh, in the right part of the cycle. I, I think they all have a, their place as you've already pointed out. Yes. All right. As much as we, yeah, we need to move on to benching. We could literally talk for the rest of the time probably about that, but uh, mm-hmm. let's move to bench. So the biggest thing that I hear from non powerlifting crowds is the whole arch in the back thing. Uh, for me personally, I don't put a huge arch in my back, mostly because I am not a flexible person and I have a very difficult time getting myself even into the position that I'm in. Uh, so that's something I need to work on. But if I could physically put a larger arch in my back, I would. Uh, absolutely. So that's the, the biggest thing I'm hearing is it's cheating. That's not fair. Your grip is so wide. Your chest is so up. There's no, there's very little range of motion. That's not a real bench. So let's uh, let's talk about the reasons why someone might widen their hands on their bench and put an arch in their back. This is a good. Um, <clears throat> this is a good uh, argument to have, and it's especially impressive whenever people do it uh, over social media or the internet because um, everyone's got an opinion and everyone's right because everyone's an expert. Um, I, I think the simplest way to put this uh, whole argument to rest is the people who make uh, the comments, they don't understand the sport. They don't understand the reasoning behind um, the rationale, rather, why it is that, that you arch or grip where you grip or the position of your chest or anything like that. So the, the best way to put this argument to rest is to say um, no one says to a Major League Baseball player that they should not uh, throw the ball as all baseball players do, where when they step and throw, the elbow passes in front of the hand, and then the hand whips forward. Um, studies have actually shown that you know doing that over a long period of time, especially you know when you're a pitcher or catcher, um, you know that's going to lead to severe rotator cuff damage and to problems in the uh, elbow. That's where Tommy John surgery came from. That's the whole origin of it all. Um, nobody says to, uh, let's see, hockey players that um, they should make sure that they limit their ice time or that they may, should make sure that they spend a lot of time exercising with their skates off because doing so is bad for their ankles or could lead to chronic problems, um, you know, osteophytes or osteoporosis or arthritis in the hips. And nobody says to um, – What's the other example? Oh, Major League uh, NFL football players that they shouldn't be tackling one another. I mean, we have this whole concussion, uh, concussive traumatic brain injury thing going on, but no one is saying to NFL football players that you guys should not be tackling each other, should be running around grabbing flags. The simple, the simple fact is that our sport involves moving a weight from one point to another while adhering to a very specific set of criteria. The feet have to be flat on the floor. The butt has to be on the bench. The shoulders and head have to be in contact with the bench. The hands can go no wider than 81 centimeters wide. Uh, The elbows have to be locked at the beginning and the end of the lift. 
and um, the bar can come down and touch at any point in the chest or abdomen area. Bar comes down as motionless, given a press command, and it comes back up into um, full extension again. The rules state nothing about a required amount of range of motion. They don't state anything about what position the thoracic and upper lumbar vertebrae have to be in. They don't state anything about that. And given such, it is to an athlete's advantage to follow the rules and do so taking every advantage um, possible. Um, so an athlete that has a very hypermobile vertebrae, they're able to extend their spine into a very big arch, that sort of thing, it's, it behooves them to remove as much range of motion as possible so that they're able to move a greater amount of mass over a given range of motion. So um, it's just part of the sport. So if you're able to increase that arch and move that, range, that mass over a shorter range of motion, it is in every bit your advantage to do so. Is it going to be detrimental to a person's long-term health? No more so than a person being a competitive gymnast because the things that competitive gymnasts do um, on the, you know, the, the young, the post-secondary, secondary, and, and you know, high school and collegiate level is, is absolutely no better than what competitive powerlifters do as far as the compressive and, and flexible mobility forces that they put on their body. That's my answer to that argument. Um, it's part of the sport, and anyone who argues against it really doesn't understand it and doesn't have a keen understanding of biomechanics or kinesiology. That was an excellent answer. It's almost like you had that written out ready to go. Uh, what, was all, what else was I going to touch on with that? Let's touch on uh, – well, I guess it's the same thing with hand position. You pretty much answered both in, in one question, which is decreasing range of motion. Uh, in the CrossFit regionals, which are happening and have already happened in some regions, uh, benching was actually in the CrossFit regionals, which we haven't seen in a while. Uh, mm-hmm. which uh, then it's funny because when something shows up in CrossFit regionals, it then ends up showing up a lot back in the gym, like, crap, we haven't been doing this. Uh, so we had a lot of people, you know, starting to bench and a lot of people benching more, et cetera. And, uh, you know, when I started CrossFit and even before that, I, I always had a relatively, na- like a pretty narrow bench. And you knew that. I mean, you judged my first competition. My hands are super narrow because that's how I learned how to bench. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took a, it definitely took some getting used to. I thought there's no freaking way I could ever move my hands out. I don't, I'm not powerful in that position. I do not feel powerful in that position. Um, but I have to say it's definitely, definitely once I got used to it and practiced it, there's been great improvements within my bench. But again, it all depends on what you're looking to do and what your, what your focuses are. So there's, it's an absolute, it's a trade-off. I mean, it's a hundred percent a trade-off. And the um, question that every athlete has to ask themselves, or if they have a coach, the every question, every coach has to answer the athlete's question is, is it worth my return on investment in order to increase my grip so that I decrease the range of motion? Am I going to recoup and recover and overcome the uh, strength ratio or force differences that the shift that takes place from whenever you're, and a narrow grip. And most CrossFitters start with a narrow grip because what do you do a lot of in CrossFit? You do a lot of push-ups and you do a lot mm-hmm. of pull-ups, a lot of movement patterns that take place in a narrower grip. So the narrower grip is mm-hmm. very intuitive to a CrossFitter because that's more akin to what it is that you do. In powerlifting, we really put a lot of 
I mean, most powerlifters, I would tell you, use that max legal or moderate to max legal uh, grip because we we see the return on investment and we say, well, if we can decrease the range of motion by shifting our our hands out and we can make up for that strength ratio difference by saying that when we go wide, or excuse me, when we go narrow too wide and move our hands out, we're shifting the amount of work that our triceps do to make it less and increasing the amount of work that our, our uh, pecs and our anterior delts do. Uh, and, and the trade-off for most people is more than worth it because uh, our, pecs are, our, our pecs and delts together have a larger muscle cross-sectional area, at least for most people they do, than the triceps. So if you mm, go to a medium to medium-wide to full uh, max legal grip, the 81-centimeter line, what most people are going to find is they're able to do more weight because you're involving more muscle cross-sectional area than if you use a narrow grip. Also an excellent answer. Uh, see, this is why we have him on because I wouldn't be able to talk like this. He's talking in Spanish half the time here. But uh, <laughs> let's, let's move on to deadlifts since I try to keep these to a half an hour, 40 minutes-ish. Uh, I feel like I lose you guys after that amount of time. But deadlifts, so sumo versus conventional. Uh, and when people see me doing sumo and are saying and, and say things, which, again, I'm, I'm making it sound like people come up to me and, like, bash powerlifting all the time. That's totally not true. It's just more people asking questions uh, and just wondering, you know, what's going on and different ways to do things. So, uh, you know, Obviously, I am extremely short. I'm five one and a half, maybe on a good day. And when I do a sumo deadlift, and my legs are wider, clearly in a wider stance than if I was doing a conventional deadlift, I don't have to move that far. Uh, so I'm basically picking up the weight, and it's not moving. To some, that would be like, well, that's that's cheating. That's not a real deadlift. You're barely moving the weight. Well, yeah, that's on purpose because I'm short and I'm taking advantage of that. But let's touch and. Furthermore, there's a lot of phenomenal deadlifters, some of the best deadlifters ever that lift conventional. So there's there's good to both, and it's definitely what a specific person, what works with their body mechanics. But let's touch a little more, like you did on the last two lists, on sumo versus conventional. So I'll take a different approach to the whole sumo versus conventional. For someone that comes up and says, um, you know, why are you doing sumo deadlift or um, you should be doing conventional or sumo deadlifting is cheating, which there are plenty of them out there. Um, you know, I would very simply look at them and I, in a very friendly manner, I would ask, says who? And if they are very adamant in their methodology or their dogma or whatever it is they get their ideas from, you know, probably the, the realm or the base from which they make that assumption is they're probably CrossFitters. And it's my understanding that in CrossFit, at least for a while, uh, that the sumo deadlifting was not allowed. It was not allowed to be used in competition. Is that correct, Melinda? Uh, even now, I mean, I'm not sure if I've ever seen a competition that sumo deadlifts were involved. Uh, usually it's always conventional. There's been one competition I've been in where we had to establish a one rep max deadlift, and you could sumo for that. But as far as an award goes, it really only makes sense if you're trying to do the most reps you can in a short amount of time to be doing it. 
So I, I have no, okay. I haven't ever seen a sumo deadlift programmed in a CrossFit wad other than like in a strength portion of, of a class. And that's my that's my understanding as well. Um, yeah. uh, my girlfriend, uh, future wife, she's uh, she's a she has a CrossFit background, and so that's my understanding as well. And so, like I was saying, I would say to that person, I'd say, okay, well, that makes sense for you because you're coming from a, a CrossFit background that and that doesn't adopt sumo deadlifting as part of its training uh, curriculum and that's fine and if I were in a CrossFit world and I was a CrossFitter then I would respect because that's the rules that govern that sport and so if you're going to come up to me and tell me what should be allowed in my sport you don't really have a leg to stand on because um, I believe CrossFit's been around since like 1991 or 1992 does that sound about right yeah I think so yeah I'm sure if my if my uh, my memory serves me correctly. We've been around since 1962 to 1963. So we've got you beat by almost 30 years. So our sport was around first. CrossFit was born out of these odd lifts, Olympic lifts, and the gymnastic lifts and the gymnastic movements. And, and therefore, you know, they created their own set of rules and standards and policies, procedures that they abide by. And we, um, who have been around longer, have ours. And the rule doesn't state you have to stand at a certain particular stance with your hands outside of your knees and legs. The rules say nothing about that. The rules say the bar has to go from the floor to standing fully erect without supporting the bar on your thighs or moving your feet and uh, to stand as tall as possible. It does say, doesn't say anything about the stance or the stance width that's required. Um, so, you know, the whole notion that one style of deadlifting is wrong or cheating or not right it just shows people's lack of understanding or ignorance of our sport. So um, if you're trying to get fit, you know, there's a place actually for both kinds of, of lifting as um, you know, Melinda can tell you from our programming and, and any of my other friends like uh, Ryan Gleason and Gleason performance training, Kevin can over precision powerlifting systems, Jeremy Hartman at Hartman performance training or um, John Downing at Ohio state university powerlifting club. They'll all tell you that, there is place in a proper powerlifting program for both styles. Um, we train both stances. We, and, and for someone who's new and writing a program, you should. You should train both stances. You should do both conventional and sumo deadlifts and find out which one works best. Just taking a guess or flipping a coin or asking your coach what he thinks is not the best choice because who knows? Maybe you just haven't done your conventional stance as correct enough. Maybe your back isn't, uh, you know, neutral enough. Maybe the bar is floating away. Maybe your head's in the wrong position. Maybe your hands are too far apart. Maybe you just never learned how to do it efficient enough. And the conventional stance is the one that's actually best for you. So uh, training both stances, as you found out, Melinda, is a really good way because not only will you find out which one you're better at, but the one that you're not good at complements the one you compete with. So we train, uh, you and I, we train our conventional deadlift because you, we are sumo deadlifters, and the conventional deadlift training it will make you better at a sumo by strengthening your uh, low, mid, and upper back to make sure that your back stays at least neutral, if not extended, and uh, creating a nice, stable, firm torso angle so the bar travels smoothly from the floor to lockout. That was another excellent answer, except when you pull your back out, you know, and then you're completely doing terrible at your deadlifts, but we won't go into that because that's how my life is going right now. Uh, but absolutely. So uh, 
something that I even noticed just from working uh, with my stepson and his friend. They, we just did this for fun. Uh, it wasn't anything serious. They ended up entering a few powerlifting meets, and they had never. Well, one of my stepson had never deadlifted before ever at all. Uh, the other kid had. Uh, we started with conventional, and we just trained conventional, trained conventional, trained conventional. And then one day I, we started training sumo, then we started training both, and just saw which one took off for them. Uh, they both mm-hmm. ended up taking off with sumo, which surprised me. I thought for sure one of them was more of a conventional lifter, but once he started doing sumo, it increased by like 20, 30 pounds instantly. Uh, so it's it's interesting to see you can't always guess what you think by someone's body and what they might be good, better at. That's a really good point because yeah. uh, just like I said, teaching high bar should be done first because it's easier and most people can do it. They have the mobility enough to do it, um, and whereas learning low bar first is hard because a lot of people may not have the external rotation and the overhead mobility enough to support that weight with their hands externally rotated uh, back enough to hold that weight. Like you said, it's very uncomfortable. Same thing I think goes for uh, deadlifting. I think it's easier to teach the conventional because we as lazy Americans, a lot of us uh, don't walk into the gym the first time with the ability or the groin flexibility enough to just walk up and pick up a sumo deadlift without there being some sort of like groin issue or mobility issue in the uh, adductor. So I think it's probably smart, just like you did it to smart to start with a conventional. And then once we get work on their strengths and, and work on flexibility and mobility and that, you know, the groin and mobility increases, then the people can uh, then begin to teach the sumo as you did and then find out, like you said, train both and find out which one takes off. Yeah. And definitely good experience uh, for me with that. And then obviously uh, as well, I it, it's funny because the CrossFit program that I come from, we have always trained both. Uh, we may not do sumo deadlifts in a wad, again, because when you're doing something for time, that really doesn't make sense. Uh, but we've always trained both sumo and conventional, which I think is great, and I, and I hope more CrossFit gyms are, are doing that now is – Ex, uh, letting their members experience both lifts because again, how many CrossFitters are really going to the games? How many CrossFitters are really going to the regionals? You might expose someone at the gym to something that they're extremely good at and didn't know they had a talent in. Definitely thankful that uh, our CrossFit program at CrossFit Tough has trained both consistently because I probably wouldn't be where I am today with sumo deadlifting if I had just picked it up like a year ago when we started working together. Um, mm-hmm. So hopefully, hopefully more CrossFit gyms and CrossFit gyms are doing that across across the world. But as we are looking to wrap up here, and again, I know this is a subject that we could go on forever with, but I feel like at least it was a good basis of the differences and variations of each lift. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that's like a quick point or tip or something else that you might want to add in before we wrap up? Uh, yeah, I'd say one, one big thing, um, very yeah. good, uh, friends with, uh, USA, uh, and IPF powerlifter, uh, world USA world team member, uh, world champion lifter, Ellis McLean, who represents the United States in a 93 kilo class. He's a good friend of mine. Um, he was having some issues. I'm trying to remember 
think it was with his deadlift, and this has been about a year, year and a half ago, and we were just talking uh, at a competition. I think it might have been Ronettes. I can't remember where it was we were talking about. Maybe it was the Arnold. Yeah, he was just sitting around. He was sharing with me everything, and then he kind of asked my opinion. And, you know, I had thought about it for a while, and this is the one piece of advice that I would give to everyone, no matter where they are on their powerlifting journey, whether they're starting, um, whether they are um, experiencing great success where they are currently, or maybe they've hit a plateau, or maybe they are experiencing some failures, some setbacks, some things that um, they're not seeing go correctly that they'd like to make better. This one principle that I told Ellis um, that I'll tell your your listeners that really has rang true with him and, and, and a lot of my other lifters is how good, at you, how good are you at what it is that you're not good at? If you are struggling or even if you're doing well, I ask every single lifter, and I've asked Alice this, how good are you at what it is that you're not good at? Or maybe it is that you're not paying attention to something that you have repeatedly not paid attention to. What is it that you're not looking at? What is it, what is it that you're not training? If you're a really, really good squatter, and your delft is struggling, and you're a pretty good bencher, what is it that you're not good at? You're, right now you're struggling with your deadlift. So if you're struggling with your deadlift, what is it that you're doing to make that deadlift better? And what is it that you're not doing or what is it that you're doing that you're not good at that's going to make that deadlift better? Whatever it is, that lift is a struggling. If you're struggling on squat, you're really good uh, mid to narrow stance squatter, as many new power lifters are. Have you ever tried a wide stance squat with like, you know, 8 to 16 inches wider than what you normally would do? No, you're not. Why not? Why wouldn't you give that a shot and really challenge your adductors and your groin to see or your vastus medialis, your inner quads, to really see how good your inner thigh and groin stability and flexibility is. So challenging yourself to do things that, they're, that you're not good at is only going to make your, uh, your lifts better and it's only going to make your weak lift better. As I have said before to a lot of my newer lifters, you're, you are only as – Strong as the weakest link in your kinetic chain. And so by working on those weak links in your kinetic chain, that's the way the whole chain gets stronger. Yeah. That is excellent advice to close this on. I like Thank it. you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for coming on. And for people listening in uh, next week, next week, right, next week, because I do these monthly, I'm losing it. It's been a long day. Excuse me. Next month... <laughs> Uh, I'll release the date soon. I'm actually bringing on a company that I use for my meal prep. Uh, it's a company based out of New York called Macro New, and they will be on discussing the ins and outs of the meal prep business. Uh, it's a little bit different than something I normally do. Normally I bring on people and we're talking about different types of competition or different things uh, with self-help, et cetera, in life. And this is a little bit different, but if you have noticed recently in the fitness industry, these meal prep companies have been taking off and they're popping up all over the place. So the perfect time to bring these guys on and discuss what they have done because they have grown exponentially in the past year. So stay tuned for that. I will be posting all of that on Facebook, Instagram, et cetera. Thank you again, Zach, for coming on. This was great, and I'm sure we will do something in the future because we could do shows and shows and shows on powerlifting. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Have a good night.